All right, so here we are on the promo tour for the Black Panther prequel. Um, today, we are very lucky to have with us producer Ian Scharf, costume designer Danielle Guida, actor Fiona Breslin, and authenticity consultant Winston Ardwin. So um, the prequel for this Black Panther film takes place pre-Wakanda when the five tribes that we see in the original film have yet to come together in one sort of confederacy. Um, so they're all living separately in the area in which the vibranium is located. And our main character, Anathi, finds the first flower and eats it, which transports her to the magical realm where she meets the panther god who tells her to become the first Black Panther and unify all the tribes. Um, despite her work with her tribe, which becomes the Panther tribe, to bring everyone together and create a society, the Jabari, one of the five tribes, realizes how vibranium could be used to encourage European colonialism, as well as exploitation and other outside values within Wakanda. Um, so they challenge this divine kingship from the first Black Panther through a merit-based challenge. And although they fail to overthrow the Panther tribe, the Council of Elders do agree to close Wakanda off to trade uh, while deciding to move forward uh, with using the vibranium in their society. So Ian, uh, the prequel is set at approximately 400 CE, correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. And thank you so much for having me today, Erica. Yes, of course. I'm really happy to have you here. Um, so can you explain the decision behind setting this uh, prequel in this time frame? Because you really had a lot of potential eras to work with. Yes, so we that is correct. We definitely had a lot of options available to us. Um, but we wanted to go with what aligned the most with the plot of the original movie while taking... Um, influence from historical developments within the continent. So even though the fictional nation of Wakanda is located somewhere near modern-day Rwanda, we chose 400 CE to mirror the emergence of the Kingdom of Wagadu, or um, ancient Ghana. So we wanted to paint a picture of a sort of parallel kingdom in which um, control would eventually fall into the hands of the Panther tribe. So I say parallel kingdom because of the sim similar trends between the two, but also because of the importance and defining differences. So, and, and that's aside from the phonetic similarities in the mm -hmm. names. So, um, they were both large table metals. So while Wagadu we see that Wakanda mm -hmm. um, gains its power from vibranium. Uh, and so, how, however, they... However, the importance of these metals is widely different. So while the kingdom of Wagadu mined gold and concealed its location to facilitate trade, Wakanda would eventually use vibranium to conceal their entire existence and facilitate technological development. So while both have based their economic and political systems on a metal, we see these kind of equal and opposite kingdoms forming. Very interesting. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, so the plot of the film seems to really focus on tribal dynamics and expanding on the political structures that were introduced in the first Black Panther film. Um, what inspired you to emphasize this aspect of early Wakanda? Well, um, to begin with, Erica, uh, tribal dynamics are essential to the formation of political systems in many African societies. And so we felt that this would, should be no different in the formation of Wakanda. 
So in our studies of Wagadu, we found that several chiefdoms came together to form the kingdom as a whole. And this is a similar trend that we see in many sub-Saharan settlements in the Sahel region. Um, so we see that different tribal groups will oftentimes uh, serve different functions or represent different divisions of food collection, cultivation, or the production of goods. So uh, in this installment of the story, we want to highlight the roles of each of these tribes and the roles that they played in the inception of the Kingdom of Wakanda, given that in the original film, we found that these tribes are largely sidelined without much backstory. Mm -hmm. um, so even though the, the story is completely fictional, taking influence from real social and political trends that occur across the continent make the story all the more, all the more real for our audience, in our opinion. Great. Um, so Danielle, as costume designer, obviously you have to be very aware of these tribal differences. Um, what work did you put into differentiating the tribes and the respective roles and histories in Wakanda? Erica, thank you. Okay, sure. So in coming up with the costumes, I mainly wanted to consider the backstories of each of these tribes and build their individual identities before they were one nation. And in my research, I came across a site in West Africa called Jenny Jenna, which is an incredibly rich archaeological site that revealed a lot about early urban centers and I was struck by their strategies for dealing with things like unpredictable climates because within the center, they were divided both spatially and by their subsistence practices, but together they formed this one interconnected economy. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that could be a fitting model for early Wakanda. And I wanted to apply a similar approach to the five tribes in our film. So for example, the river tribe in the first film is characterized by its protection of Wakanda's waterways. And so for our prequel, I wanted to ask why that was the responsibility and who were these people before they were the quote, river tribe of Wakanda. Mm -hmm. And so I thought back to Jenny Geno and invented this kind of background where the spatialization of their community and its geographic location near waterways gave them a history of specializing in things like fishing and building boats and being a population that's really comfortable in water. So their costumes reflect this through the textures that are shell-based and using jewelry that's crafted with wire that the river tribe would have used to go fishing. And I sort of applied this logic of varying geographies and specialized backgrounds to the details in the costumes of all of the tribes. It's great. I'm glad to have you here to expand on that. And your work very clearly pays off in the visual of the film. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so how did you use, you spoke on this a little bit, but how did you use the original Black Panther movie to determine the styles that you would um, have in the prequel? Sure. Yeah. So I was always impressed by how much historically inspired and diverse detail went into the costuming of the original film, but I felt that most of the tribes got such little screen time, so those details never really came to the forefront. And so with our prequel, I had the opportunity to build on the brilliance and the care that went into those original costumes. And I looked to the original film, especially when it came to costuming the Jabari tribe, and I took direct inspiration from M'Baku's costume because I thought that since the Jabari value 
retaining their long-standing traditions and avoiding the modernizations that come with exploiting vibranium, as we explore in our film, that the Jabari in the time of our prequel would dress very similar to M'Baku in the original film. And this is also supported by, um, again, going back to the importance of varying specializations, the Jabari's separated location off in the mountains. And being accustomed to such a cold, isolated place, I wanted them to wear lots and lots of fur, just like M'Baku. And I used beads and jewelry, jewelry more sparingly with them with the Jabari to show that while they do have their own power they were not as interested in kind of ornately expressing their wealth because they initially did not want to be a part of this royal system. Yeah well obviously a lot of research went into the film as you were saying with your experience um, looking at the Jenny Genau um, Winston as authenticity consultant how involved were you on the development side of the film with Danielle, but also on the acting side. Hi, Erica, thanks for having me. There's uh, very few times that having a focus on early Africa becomes you know, relevant, um, or at least perceivably relevant in society today. Um, and this is an awesome way to really show that off. Um, and so I was very involved with you know, the production, both on the development side, as well as the acting side kind of reflecting on a lot of what um, Danielle had said, there was a lot of research put into kind of how different groups throughout ancient Africa um, or early Africa kind of responded to the external stimuli. And so as she was doing a lot of research as to how to really design the groups and make them look the part, um, you know, I was kind of right there with her making sure that everything that she did and every decision that was made um, also had this kind of historical background. Um, but on the acting side, it was also really, really interesting. Um, you know, when you bring up these topics of early African history and some of the different historical, you know, themes that we bring up, um, a lot of people don't really know how to respond to them because we're used to history being presented in this almost Eurocentric way where everything's written down on paper and that's how we respond. But within this movie and kind of talking to the actors early on, um, it was really interesting to kind of bring up these, you know, ideas of reverence towards the ancestors, the different leadership styles that also then go into affect the different interpersonal relationships between individuals, um, as well as the linguistic differences, just seeing the way that people responded. Um, you know, they really had a hard time at first figuring out exactly how to play the part. Um, and so it was working with them and doing a little bit more of the kind of the explanation of what everything meant to kind of break that Eurocentric idea of governance, of leadership, of religion, of all these different topics to really nail down the point. It was specifically interesting working with the Jabari because as they, you know, are this kind of group that has this weird, almost ephemeral relationship where they're both within the Wakandan society, but they're also kind of without at the same time. And we explain how that happens you know, that kind of weird free association of sorts. It's something that's really difficult to explain to someone who's grown up in a Western political system. And so it was really neat getting to explain and work with the actors on that. Mm -hmm, I see. Um, and what were some of the greatest challenges you faced while trying to ensure that the prequel was consistent with the early African history timeframe that it was chosen? You know, one of the biggest difficulties was something that was also kind of a recurring problem or a recurring difficulty of sorts within the original production of the first Black Panther. 
Um, and it was that African society, despite what people may think or what um, people say, you know, it's not a monolith. There's no single story of early Africa. There's no single kind of lived experience that we really base this off of. So we really had to kind of look throughout the entire continent. Um, and I brought forth, you know, every time a different theme came up, whether it be religious belief, whether it be social norms, gender norms, um, culture, like in language, you know, I would bring up a number of different examples that showcased kind of different ways that individuals throughout Sub-Saharan Africa really, you know, lived in kind of the world that they were experiencing. Um, so we kind of had to pick and choose and create this kind of overlap of themes. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was, it, it was very interesting. And so we kind of talk about throughout the different themes and kind of the challenges that we face, you know, with social norms, we kind of pick up both kind of concepts of talent-based leadership that we see throughout the continent, um, as well as divine and divine leadership that creates this more hierarchical system. Um, because as we said earlier, there's this kind of confederacy that's formed in early Wakanda that more or less is similar to a lot of the groups in the Sahel, but also similar to historical groups in Southern Africa, Southern Central Africa, such as the Luba. Um, but we really get into how that changes with both this mix of divine leadership and talent-based leadership that we also see in um, the first Black Panther. Uh, you also have Belokwe, which is kind of this royal, this inherently royal divine blood that kind of dictates like which people in the society are the royals or who have mm -hmm. positions. And so you have this very kind of intriguing conversation to be had in the movie with how we take different groups in Africa and take their specific histories and pair them together. We also see that with, you know, the interpersonal relationships and leadership styles, gender roles, where we have some matriarchal groups and some patriarchal groups, um, which gets back and it'll be explained a little bit later about why the first Black Panther is female, um, religious traditions with how people have their reverence towards their ancestor, but also these different gods, such as the Panther God or the Gorilla God or um, individuals of that nature. And then, of course, the language. Um, and one of the cool things we also start to see is economic and trade specialization that really cause an interesting conversation and a difficulty where we had to decide how to portray that. Um, and so we kind of discuss how specialization may have occurred because of the growing interdependence between the different groups that then became Wakanda. Uh, but also throughout the history of early Africa, you see groups specializing to be able to best fit in and capitalize on expanding trade networks coming in um, from the Swahili coast in Eastern Africa. But we really had to grapple with this kind of, this narrative that the rest of the world didn't know what vibranium was and that Wakanda were trying to hide it. And so we really had to do some hard thinking about, you know, how to fit that into history and how to kind of address topics such as the incoming of the Europeans and expansion of trade while also still hiding that vibranium is that still crucial to the Black Panther timeline well clearly an immense amount of work went in um to developing this prequel um on your standpoint as a consultant were there any historical inaccuracies from the first film that were on your mind as you consulted on the prequel um I think it's hard to say inaccuracies as I brought up um you know the cultural consultants for the first film and historical consultants for the first film had a lot of the same problems where we didn't necessarily know exactly what to take. Um, obviously, we're not mentioning any single part of the African continent. Uh, we're really trying to pull from throughout 
all of Sub-Saharan Africa. One of the most complicated things that I would say though, that I particularly disagree with, um, gets into a little bit of the linguistics. And so, you know, the, in the first Black Panther, they did just use real African languages to kind of create a sense of realness. And so while the majority of the Wakandans speak Isinglasa, which is a language out of South Africa, um, you had the Jabari tribe keep their language, Hausa, or which is modeled off of Hausa from Nigeria, um, which the fact that the two would be so close creates a little bit of an interesting historical point. Because um, I think from my perspective, it would have been better for them to pick two Bantu languages, seeing as you know the approximate location is in modern day Rwanda, um, but then also based off of looking at the historical Bantu expansion um, and how there were so many similarities between the languages because of just the slow spread. And so you go to Cameroon to modern day South Africa, and you do see at least some type of similarities between the languages due to this Bantu history. Um, and you know, the way the languages would spread, they would start in one community and then the edges or as that group kind of grew and grew um, away from the center of the community, they would break off and form another language just due to like literal geographic distance. And so it's really interesting to get into that history and there's so much more I'd love to share. Um, but we did choose to kind of adopt that language difference and apply it to the new film, talking about the prequel, because one thing that we realized is the Jabari and their kind of weird free association, um, they decided to hold their language really close and keep that as part of their culture. Um, but likely all of the tribes that then became Wakanda would have had their own individual language and then the language of the Panther tribe Wakandan, but what is actually Eastern Rasa, would have been adopted by all. So in the new movie, you're going to see um, Eastern Rasa still, you're going to see Hausa, um, you're going to see Lingala, which is a Bantu, or a Bantu language from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you're going to see Ulosi, which was actually in Zambia, um, and Ovambo, which is called Oshiwambo from um, modern-day Namibia and Angola. And so... Yeah, it just becomes really interesting to kind of look at what they did in the last movie. Even though I don't necessarily agree with all the decisions, we are doing our best to still incorporate them. We even took a what's that name for the first Black Panther, Anati, which actually means they are with us, um, which we thought was really interesting as well. So, yeah, um, you know, I'm really glad that I got to explain some of this background because it's something that is truly, really important and points to so many issues. Um, or so many just important narratives that the world really doesn't get to hear as much. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for sharing kind of that background with us. Um, yeah, hopefully that'll really enrich the film experience for audiences. Um, so that sounds like some work for you, Fiona, to understand the linguistic context of your role. Yes, absolutely. And again, thank you so much for having us, um, you know, be able to explain this process for us. You know, in regards to the linguistic context, it was really important for me to get a good grasp of all of this, you know, before filming even began. I think the language was a big learning curve for me. Uh, and it took a lot of, you know, listening to clips of people saying things mm -hmm. I couldn't understand, which can be kind of daunting, you know, when you're an actor, especially when you're just starting off, you're really encouraged to learn a lot of new languages or dialects or the best you can in your kind of spare time to build your resume and 
you know, what you're able to do as an actor, different projects, but it's usually, you know, Spanish or French or Italian, something that's defined to the continent of Europe usually. So it's certainly something that I had no experience Mm -hmm. with coming into. Um, But I was able to learn a lot about language, not just the language itself, because when you're an actor uh, doing a language you're unfamiliar with, you're obviously not becoming Mm -hmm. fluent um, in it. But I was also able to kind of learn about how language spreads and why it does that, which is a whole caveat of information that I wasn't expecting to learn from the role for sure. And I think, you know, besides that, as an actor, you know, I think we're all kind of perfectionists in a way. Um, but in that case, there was an added importance to getting things right. And, you know, Winston was obviously a big help with that. And I think we were really lucky to have him working on the film because we were all really passionate. I think that was something that was really important. We were all equally passionate about doing the necessary research and doing justice to the reality, even though what we were making was largely Mm, fiction. And uh, what other research went into playing the role of the first Black Panther? Yeah, it it was a lot of research and it was a really enjoyable experience for me doing this research because I got to learn so much. And I think it was important for me to understand as much about African society at that time as I could going into this role you know, such a small part of my formal history education back many years ago was dedicated to studying the African continent. It was such a small part. And even then it was usually the story started with slavery and that was it, which is light years before our story in this film even begins. So I had a lot to learn, Um, but there is so much complexity to the African society from this time and even complexities within different regions than is what most people learn. And I think there's all kinds of kingdoms and power structures that were unbelievably powerful and influential in the world um, that so many people are completely unfamiliar with. And it's actually pretty astounding that all of that history seems to kind of been lost in the shuffle over time, considering how really substantial it is or the way I perceived it in my research. Um, But as I was preparing for that role, that kind of idea for of power was a really big focus. I think I really wanted to be able to understand the power structures of the time, especially considering the power that my character that I play in the film, you know, that that's a large part of the plot. And I think it's such a relevant topic in society today with everything that's going on, this concept of power and The movie itself is all about the creation of a new power structure in a way. So I found that it was that kind of idea of divine kingship that uh, really defined how people set up their societies. Yeah. So this idea of divine kingship, which you just brought up, um, we see it throughout the we see it through the Black Panther themselves, um, as well as the other world that they travel to there where um, your character Anathi meets the Panther God. Um, So where does that Mm -hmm. come from um, on the African stage? What sort of research did you come across and what um, historical societies did you draw from for your role? Yeah, so um, I tried to, you know, do as much research as I could and try and get a broad grasp, uh, basically because everything I was learning was totally brand new information for me. Um, And it was really Uh, interesting part of my research to look at these power structures. Um, You know, in school, you learn about, 
you know, maybe the five most important kings in Western Europe, and Mm -hmm. you call it a day, but there's so many other kinds of leaderships throughout history. And honestly, what I learned in my research for this role is that there were a lot of other types of leadership throughout history that made a lot more sense to me personally, at least, than what I had learned in school. So this kind of divine kingship that we're talking about here uh, idea basically works in a way that the power of the kingdom is kind of rooted in the loyalty of everyone who thinks is the most fit uh, to rule, which sounds logical and it sounds like how every system works, you know, the person in power is the person who should be in power. Um, but that's not really true. If you, I mean, if you look at a lot of, say, European kingdoms, power was strictly secessional from father to son. And that power was really rarely questioned, at least not successfully, right? So um, in a lot of contemporaneous African societies, the power was more derived from the people themselves, which I found to be a lot more of an enriching experience to learn about. Um, Like groups of different tribes came together to form communities, and they all contributed to it in unique and equally substantial ways, at least over a long period of time. So the continuation of that relationship seems to have been this like mutual loyalty and trust. And it's really what made these structures successful for such long periods of time. And if you think about it, it makes a lot more sense than a lot of the other societies that, you know, most people might be more familiar with or what they learned about in school. Um, Yeah, it actually in some ways seems more modern. Yeah, great point. Um, So we've been talking a lot about this idea of divine kingship, but the Council of Elders um, seems to show how both blood succession and merit-based leadership forms existed simultaneously in Africa, um, at least during the setting of this prequel. Um, So Danielle, how did you try to balance these two forms of political power when dressing the most prominent members of early Wakandan society? Yeah, that's a great question, actually, because the elders were an especially tricky group for me to dress because I wanted to emphasize that despite their eventual agreement to serve under the Black Panther, that they still are important contributors to the council and they have their own authority that is backed by the loyalty of their own people. And this idea that Wakanda just does not function as a country without the individual tribes believing in Wakanda as a country. And they look to the elders to see them help, but not submit to the Black Panther. And so I wanted to have the elders wearing, you know, lots of vibranium accessories to express their wealth and their authority. Um, For example, um, the Kamoyo beads that we see in the original film, which are used to communicate through these vibranium images. And it's all because their costumes do have to reflect their status as elder, that they they were born into it. But I also wanted to maintain those connections to their own tribe because the support of their people is also an important qualification to their leadership position. So the River Tribe elder also wears shell-based textures like his people and the mining elder wears vibranium woven fabrics that his people would have mastered and so on and so on with see. all the other elders. Um, so obviously the first Black Panther film, we only see a patrilineal line of succession from T'Chaka to T'Challa. 
Um, and we touched on this a little bit, Winston, both Winston and Fiona brought this up. Um, but Ian, what went into the decision to make the first Black Panther female? Right. So um, to begin with, we felt that in the original film, um, a very patrilineal system was portrayed. So, and this is almost obligatory considering that uh, the characters from the original comics that the film was based on, um, well, at least T'Challa and his father T'Chaka, they're both male. And so we don't really get a glimpse into the other, um, you know, the other dynamics of leadership and that um, in the, in the society as a whole, but we want to emphasize that the black Panther need not be a man and that the original lineage was actually traced from the first female Black Panther to ingest the heart-shaped herb. So she was actually the first Black Panther. So we, we decided to focus on this after researching clans such as the Bemba and their oral tra- traditions, in which a chief marries Mumbi Mukasa of the Crocodile Clan, an almost divine figure that gives credence to their matrilineal su- succession. And so in, in that tradition, her offspring um, have what is known as Bolopwe, uh, which is the inherent status of blood uh, and a certain lineage of, of royalty within a family. But we also see that this royalty can be challenged. So uh, just as we've touched on earlier, it, it, it's kind of a coexistence between the blood lineage of royalty that can be challenged through combat. And so um, although, although we see the importance of Chaka's mother in the first film as a leading force of the kingdom and one of the elders, uh, it is largely dependent on the birth rate of her son, who is without siblings. And so we see this when she loses her power during the challenging of her son. So the issue of matrilineality goes largely unaddressed in the original film, and we felt that a sequel depicting the inception of the kingdom should include an expla- explanation for this. And of course. Uh, that draws from historical influences that we have yeah. um, uh, so covered before. Fiona, um, covered, as the uh, actor playing this role, um, did it really bring an added weight this responsibility of being both the first black panther but also being the only female black panther that we have seen in any film adaptations of the comics yes absolutely and i i think anyone who was you know focused on doing this role right um, would definitely feel an added weight to that you know as a woman playing a powerful female lead it was really important, and this kind of goes back to the research, that it was important for me to understand how women fit in to the society of the time. Um, because if you're thinking about, you know, we're talking about so long ago, and my own exposure with the concept of powerful females in a, a Western context, it's hard to imagine that there could have been such a powerful female that was historically accurate when you're talking about so long ago where the prequel is set, right? So the first thing that caught me by surprise in my research was how valued uh, these women of these times were and how much even the common woman mattered to her lineage and her family history. You know, we're not just talking about the Black Panther here, just the common woman. So many societies, from my understanding, at least a very long time ago, um, operated on what was called this, you know, matrilineal system that we've talked about a little bit. And this kind of meant that your lineage was determined by your mother's family's relationships. And usually your mother's brother, your uncle was the authority figure for the family. Um, 
at least that's my understanding from my research, rather than the father, as in other societies that people might be more familiar with, you know, king to son and so on and so forth. So this gave women a lot of social power, if you really think about it and if you really read about it, because not only were they responsible for expanding the size and the power of, you know, the clan or tribe, so to speak, um, but they were also able to spread this power and spread the reach of their lineage um, and the power of their family by marrying into or moving to new communities that were usually, you know, sometimes quite far away from everything they knew, which is, is pretty um, amazing if you think about it um, so far, so long ago um, that women were doing that. Um, and I think it's really profound that even though we're talking about a society that was from so long ago, you know, it presented the writers and the directors and so on to create the opportunity to create a strong female role in a way that was still historically accurate and possible. You know, I think it's really important that in a Hollywood context, the writers saw the opportunity and took it to create this female role and create this film that was in a sense centered around a female lead that was celebratory without being patronizing, right? Which is, you know, something that is a hard line to walk um, today in Hollywood. And I think it makes you think about how much we still have to learn about the world, not just past, but also present. And I think overall, for me personally, it was a really powerful experience to play a female lead, first of all, but especially one set in a society that so many people are probably unfamiliar with. And the fact that that kind of female power could mm -hmm. radiate from that society is really powerful. Um, I think, you know, for all of us, I don't want to speak for everyone, but certainly for me, what we were doing felt very new um, and very important, even though it was set so long ago. And it was really rewarding to be a oh, part great. of that process. Thank you for all of you for being here today. Um, it's been a real treat to hear about how this prequel is set and um, how it was conceived and the research that you guys all put into it. Uh, it's a fantastic movie. Everyone should go out in theaters and see it. Um, and I hope that everyone really realizes the weight of all of the work that you guys put in to make such a beautiful film. So congratulations to you. And once again, thank you for coming to be here today. Yes, thank you so much, Erica. Thank you, yes. Thank you.